Hola mujeres, my name is Gladys Godinez, and this is the Courageous Mujer Podcast, where we embrace, uplift, and celebrate Latinas in Nebraska. The love and response to the show from all of you in the past year has been phenomenal. This show is made for you, and you all have showed up. We will continue to showcase Courageous Mujeres that are running for office and trailblazers who create a path for all of us. Season 3 is going to be on fire. It's time to press play and get ready to be embraced, uplifted, and celebrated. Let's get loud. And today, I get to introduce you to another Courageous Mujer. Her name is Cheryl Mora James. She's a Nebraska native, a Chicana attorney, owner of Mora James Law, and co-founder of the Nebraska Hispanic Bar Association. I'm excited to share with you the conversation that we had that includes voter registration, Latina matriarchs in our household, and so much more. Welcome, and let's get to know Cheryl Mora James. I'm super excited. I got to know you through my sister. She is an attorney here in the state of Nebraska, and she said, you need to meet Cheryl Mora James. She started the Hispanic Bar Association, and since then, you and I have interacted a little bit in regards to meatpacking. So I want to say welcome to Courageous Mujer Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited, Cheryl. Um, I always like to start with something exciting, joyful, right? So we want to make sure that we share some of that as well. What is something exciting or something that you have going on in your life that's giving you joy? Well, right now I'm starting a new project. And uh, in my project, it's, it's just a very simple app that you can put on your phone or your laptop or your iPad. And it's called Outreach Circle. My goal is to reach out to all Latinx, Hispanic, Mexican, Central American, South American, U.S. citizens, and get them registered to vote, especially our young ones. It's very important that we get them involved before 2040, definitely by 2050, that's super exciting because I know that there's a lot of young people that want to be involved, but they don't know how. And this app sounds like something that's accessible and it's easy for individuals to be able to register. Yeah, that's why we're going to set it up so that you can just go to the link. The link will take you to uh, the Secretary of State here in Nebraska. I hope to have it spread out across the nation and identify, I mean, that's the future of it, and identify leaders in each state. Uh, I mean, the reality is if we can reach the sisters, the mothers, the aunts, the grandmas, we've got the whole family. Right. Um, just recently, I had two young uh, Latinos uh, come into my office, and uh, they were inquiring about adjusting their wives. Now, one of them, he's a U.S. citizen, but was raised in Mexico. So his English isn't that good. And it's like, you know what? If I have to go with you to the polling station and uh, translate for you, I will do that. Whatever. I need you registered. And, and the, other, the other young man, I was like, why are you not registered? And well, uh, uh, I'm like, do you want to protect your wife and your family? Well, yes. I said, wouldn't you do anything to protect them? Well, yes. I said, so why aren't you registered to vote? And the wives are like, 
see what I tell you. I told you she was going to tell you. And uh, they're registered to vote now. (laughs) (laughs) But if you can get to the women of the family, you can get to the whole family. I mean, that's the bottom line. And that's unfortunately what none of the white organizations that are pro-voting, they don't get that. They don't understand that you need to get to the matriarch of that family. And once you get to the matriarch, you educate her, then it's her job to educate the whole family. And we know that, I mean, in, in my family, when my grandmother was still alive, there were, and I'm not exaggerating, probably close to 70 of us. Can you imagine one person registering 70 people? That's the bottom line. That's always been my vision since I was a child. It was like, if I could just get everybody together, we would have power. I have been, I ran it by the uh, Nebraska Democrats Latinx Caucus, and they're ready to join. And so I may use them for a while. Um, And then if I have to, I will go through each state's Latino or Latinx or whatever they call themselves. I don't care what they call themselves as long as they register to vote. And that's exciting because you're not only talking about Nebraska, but you're talking about the nation. I look forward to that because it, like you said, we're, and you have mentioned it before, we're a sleeping giant and we're... I think we're ready. We just need a little shake, you know, Cheryl. I don't know how to wake them up and shake them, but I'm ready to do it. So just let me know how I can be of assistance to them and how I can help you spread the word. So you want to talk about trailblazers? Oh, grandfather, Emilio, and my grandmother, Maria. Yeah, them being together as a married couple, that was the trailblazer. And that's who brought us here to this this country, even though we have other families connected to us that are in New Mexico and California that have been, you know, been there since before the Spaniards. But um, for my, that branch, we came because of grandma and grandpa wanting to be together and having a family. My grandfather fell in love with the India, Savis servant girl mm-hmm. on the hence the uh, hacienda next to their ranch right and they did not they did not cross that line his family were very very racist and so the truth how we how we came here was for them to be together married as husband and wife because his own family did not accept my grandmother When grandfather came and grandma, they were recruited by Southern Pacific. You'd have corporations that would go down to Mexico or Central America or South America, whoever had connections in whatever country, and you would recruit. And they didn't didn't need anything but an invitation from that corporation or that business or that company. They come over here, they automatically got a green card. That's what people don't understand. Right. And so you had this big influx. The railroad 
wanted extra gain, and that's hard work. That's really hard work. I know because I worked on the railroad before I went to law school, but that's another story for another time. Anyway, um, so they come and initially uh, they were in El Paso, Texas, and my grandfather's twin already was living in El Paso, so they had a place to stay. And then the uh, railroad transferred them up to Winfield, Kansas, probably one of the most racist places. I mean, it barely, I, I went back there recently with my mom and it's, I mean, it's a ghost town. I mean, there's nothing there really. But, you know, we had to go back because she needed to go back and see the place. And that's the, that's the uh, uh, area, that's the school that changed her name from Petra to Mary. And um, that's another story. But so the railroad then laid them off. Okay. They ended up in Colorado trying to work the fields in Colorado. But they were so racist in Colorado, we ended up in Hershey, Nebraska. Now, can you believe this? Back in the 1930s, Nebraska, Western Nebraska, was more accepting than they probably are now, mm -hmm. to be real honest with you. And all my people were Republicans back then because the Republicans welcomed us. And so, mom, and her, you know, seven brothers and two sisters were all registered Republicans. Uh, that's how we came here. That's how we ended up here. And then uh, what a lot of people don't know, in the 30s, they, the U.S. government deported U.S. citizens of Mexican descent to the tune of the estimates range from 3 million to 1 million. You take your pick. One is too many. Right. They were born in this country. Under the Constitution, they were U.S. citizens, but yet they deported them. Yeah, this is uh, it's the truth of our history. And, and you, don't, you don't learn about that. No, we don't. Um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, they... Um, our best friends, some of our best friends were Japanese potato farmers. And we knew them because when the railroad lay, laid the family off, the men in the family, uh, they worked fields. My mom was taken out of fifth grade and she was working the fields. The whole family worked the fields. Um, so I'm just one generation from the fields. First woman in my family to get past the eighth grade. First woman to graduate from high school. First person to go to college and graduate. First person to become a lawyer in the family. I'm, I'm happy to say that my nephew followed me and he was our first male attorney. So somebody's got to start that path. That's right. And might as well be. Might as well be you, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, you talked about Latino, Latinx. Um, you talked about being Mexican and, you know, having all of that rich history. 
Cheryl, how do you identify yourself? You know, our podcast is really about identity too, and our organization is really about identity. How do you go back to all through all of that history and say, this is my identity? And what what is your identity? Ethnic identity? Well, I'm a Mexican woman. That's who loved me. That's who raised me. Uh, but at the same time, I identify as a Chicana because I don't go with the flow. I make my own path and I correct what I can correct in this society so that people of the brown shade, of the black shade, of the yellow shade, of the red shade, they're protected. They need to be protected. I mean, when I, once I became an attorney, I, um, one of the best cases, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't that big of a case, but it was a little girl in a small town, not too far from where you live, (laughs) but I won't say that, I won't say the name of the town. Um, They were pulling her out of her fourth grade class to translate to her little sister who was in first grade that was in special ed. Now, tell me now, and this was, this was uh, after 1991. So it wasn't that many years ago. Okay. And so I heard about it. I asked some people to have the family contact me and they told me their story and it was like, no, the fourth grader is getting robbed of her education because she's losing out while she's over there interpreting. And it's like, no, the school needs to hire an interpreter for her sister that's in SPED. That's what needs to be done. And that's what happened. They did that. I can guarantee you that. Or the little Native American boy um, strip searched for $4. And he has special needs on top of it, if you can imagine. And at that time, I was doing uh, civil rights for people with disabilities. Okay. I did that for 17 years. And That little boy, he got him a nice little settlement. And um, I'm sure he was never strip searched again. And it turned out that he didn't have the money. It was a little blonde boy that they didn't strip search that took the money. But they strip search a little, I think he was eight or nine, over $4. And that was up north. Um, not too far from the two Native American reservations. Need I say more? You know, it just or the Latina doctor. Oh, go ahead. Or the Latina doctor who uh, they were discriminating against, and and it was because of uh, their testing mechanisms. She's a doctor now, and she doesn't have any more problems. <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> But it's, you know, or the or the black, the black woman who was working for the telephone company as the janitor. okay, And 
they wouldn't give her a simple accommodation that would have cost them less than $100. They had to be sued over it. And you know, we're talking within the last 30 years, this stuff. Right. Or the class action that I filed against the Department of Education and um, the Department of Social Services on behalf of state wards with disabilities. They were letting the welfare workers be the surrogate parents. That's against federal law. It's like, no, uh uh-uh, nope, that's not going to work. And they settled that one, but I had to sue in federal court. Or the class action against the severely mentally ill women in Hastings. This is back in, I think it was probably about 96. And uh, that class was 1,063 women. And one of my uh, name plaintiffs uh, was a Native American woman who had suffered horrendous horrendous trauma, horrendous abuse, just being a Native American woman, you know, um, that it just, and they were being raped. They were being raped by other patients who should have been in Lincoln at the forensic unit. And they were trading, they were trading off. And everybody knew what those guys, there was three guys that were doing that. And um, and they all come from the security unit. They should have been in the security room unit because they were sex offenders. They should have never, ever been allowed at Hastings. And it was a Latino man employee. I won't name who it is that came to me and told me what was going on. And it was like, we're going to put a stop to this. Yeah. And the star witness was a woman that was duly diagnosed with a developmental disability and a mental illness. But she had the courage to stand up and say no more. Just a, just a taste, right, Cheryl? Just a taste of all of the <laughs> awesome work that you have done. I think, I think we're proving why I wanted to interview you and why I want to make sure that other young Latinas get to know you because of all of the work that you have done I do want to rewind a little bit. I want to go back to young Cheryl, um, because, you know, we fast forwarded to you being an attorney and doing these, you know, needed cases and representing populations that needed representation. Um, But let's let's talk about younger Cheryl back in high school. So where did you I know you, you mentioned Hershey, but I know you have history in North Platte, too, right? Yeah, we. um my people moved from Hershey to North Platte. Probably it would have been in the 50s, early 50s. So before I was born. And um, I was one of six children, the only girl. And uh, so if I wanted to go out and play, we're either playing basketball, football, or we're fishing, or we're hunting. You know, I'm with my brothers because I'm not going to stay in the house and in bordery because that's what they had me doing. And it's like, no, mom, I don't want to do this. Come on. I want to go play. So. um, So, you know, we would go pheasant hunting 
So I, you know, I still own my shotgun. And that's another story I'll have to tell you sometime about my shotgun. Anyway, um, it was, you know, I was pretty, I was the princessa of the family. Uh, I was my, my grandfather, Emilio. I was his, his only daughter, his daughter. Okay. And um, there's an old saying in my grandmother's, basically it translates that a daughter is always your daughter. Your daughter's daughter is yours. You know, for sure. Your son's daughter, maybe not. <laughs> if you understand that, okay? That was uh, that was kind of a tra- that's loosely translated. Uh, it was one of my grandmother's sayings, which was kind of amusing, uh, because she had seven boys and only three daughters, and only one that married and had children. Um, so I kind of had, you know, I was just raised. Um, I was taught how to box because I had brothers and my father, and my father is not Mexican. My father is uh, white. Uh, For a lot of years, we thought he was part Jewish. We found out that he wasn't. Actually, he was a part Swiss Viking and English. Uh, But he never never, uh, embraced his culture. He embraced the Mexican culture. And my grandmother, because he was he was so respectful of her, um, he was her favorite, which is interesting because he was like blue eyed and and red, flaming red hair. They used to call him uh, Mexican red, which I, I think is kind of funny, but because he wasn't Mexican, but you know, a lot of people thought he was, and he never corrected them. So it was like, and he accepted the whole culture. So uh he, you know, he hit him and my grandfather were the ones that taught me how to fight because my father always said, you as a brown girl, you're going to have to be twice as good as those white boys to get half the credit. And you need to be able to defend yourself because someday you might have to. And that's kind of sad, but at the same time, I'm very glad that he prepared me that way because when I got out in the world and realized just how much sexism and racism was out there, that white guys were not like my father. My father was the exception. I mean, he was pro-equal rights and pro-choice. My mom never was. She was... I mean, she had been indoctrinated by the Catholic Church too much, but, you know, it is what it is. But my father was, um, he was, he was really uh, advanced for his time. He um, had friends of all nationalities. I mean, there wasn't anybody he couldn't visit with or didn't know um, from the farmers to the ranchers to, you know, the railroaders. It didn't matter who they were. My dad could talk to anybody. So, you know, we, like my best buddy when I was in uh, kindergarten, 
was the only African-American boy in my class, Kimberly. And um, he, his dad worked at the horse packing plant. My dad worked at Armors, which was the meat packing plant, which is the cows. And his dad was working at the horse. And it was kind of funny because even back then, working at the meat packing plant where you're killing cows was better than working at the horse plant where you're killing horses because that was really frowned upon. But both our dads were butchers. So of course we kind of just, and we lived kind of close to each other. And so, you know, that was my buddy and he always had my back and I had his back. And then by the time we got to middle school, um, he, his family moved to Cleveland, which I think was a big, a, a horrendous mistake of that family because I saw him years later. I was working in corrections here in Lincoln, Lancaster County uh, Corrections before I went to law school. And he was one of the inmates that I was handling. And I looked at him and I was like, Kim, Kimberly, is that you? And he's like, yeah. And he was in there for something. It was just, a, you know, it was something petty. I don't know, no driver's license or no license plates or something. Just guilty because you're poor. Yeah. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. you know? And then, um, so when I went to high school, I still, my protectors were either my large brother, my, my second to the oldest brother, because he was still in school, or the Mexican and the black boys that I went to junior high with. We took care of each other, you know, and I was a smart one. So, you know, if they needed help with their schooling, I'd help them with a lesson or two, you know, tell them what the answer was. But, um, and then I realized when I was about in June as a junior, I realized, oh, we don't have money for me to go to college. Mm. You know, college is not going to be a possibility for me. So I quit school. And um, my mom, I moved out of the house. I was working two, three jobs, part-time jobs. Um, And my mom was like, oh, so you're going to quit school, huh? So you're going to be a waitress all your life? Oh, okay. So you're going to wait? You're going to wait on these uh, white men? Huh? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to tell me that these white boys are better than you are? Huh? So, of course, I had to go back to school the next year. And I always had taken a, a, a grade ahead of me because I was in, the, at the time, they called them combination classes where you put the brightest of, of like the first graders and the brightest of the second graders. And you come, it was called combination rooms. And we were treated better because we were smarter. And the kids that were in the plain grades were not looked upon as being smart. I mean, I look back now and it's like the damage that they did to these kids, you know? And we, and us as combination kids, we ran around like, oh, we're so much better than you are. Not realizing the damage that was being done to the other kids. Yeah. And so I graduated and then worked a year. And then the local junior college, 
um, they were going to start a women's basketball, right? First time in, in Nebraska, right? It's like, well, hell, I can play basketball. I got five brothers. I can play basketball better than anybody. Now, keep in mind, it was street ball. So, you know, I fouled a lot <laughs> because of how they play. But it it paid uh, it paid for my tuition and my books. So, yeah, I can play ball. Not a problem. And then I graduated from and got my AA and then went to Kearney and worked in uh, Baldwin, Baldwin's factory. They made uh, filters oil filters worked there and went to school in the daytime yeah I was I I still I look back down it's like how in the hell did I do that but I did graduated couldn't get arrested graduated on the dean's list fantastic fantastic resume and if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me, the uh, prospective employer, if you were a man, we'd hire you in a minute. Yeah, that was, and you know, we're talking back in the seventies, that was allowed. Mm-hmm. They got away with that kind of shit. So I went back home and I, guess what I was doing? Waiting tables at the Char Bar, which was a family restaurant slash bar. That's what I did. And then I heard they were hiring on the railroad. And uh, the general foreman was my brother's best friend's dad. And they needed to fill some numbers. I was a Mexican woman. So guess what? I got a job on the railroad. I can drive any heavy machinery you can imagine. (laughs) And I worked for the railroad for five years before um, I got laid off. And then my parents were like, you need to go to law school. It's time. And so then I moved up here to Lincoln and um, started working at the jail as a correctional officer. And then um, got into law school. Of course, I had to uh, threaten them to get into law school. And I told them that I had, I knew that there was a young white male that had been allowed to uh, start law school. And he had numbers that were not as high as mine. And so I let them know that I knew. And so they let me in, but they almost flunked me out that first year. Cause it was, I was the only Mexican in my whole class. And when I say Mexican, the only brown person, there was uh, Christina Martinez, who was, I think she was from Ogallala. Um, she was in the class ahead of me. So, um, and the other, the other young woman was from Scott's Bluff, and they flunked her out. So um, that experience was um, <laughs> I had I had a lot of uh, interesting discussions. Uh, a lot of the students were afraid to be called on, and uh, 
I think the professors were afraid to call on me because they didn't know what I was going to say. <laughs> I think just if I could just pause and reflect a little bit, there were, you, you had a supportive system. So you had your brothers, you had your family that were supportive of you, but the outside world wasn't so welcoming to you and your Mexican heritage mm. and you as a woman. Um, just if you can reflect a little bit at that young age, what helped you overcome that? What, what said, you know what, you can thank all of me or whatever of me, but I'm still going to move forward and I'm still going to reach my goals. Any, any reflection in regards to what helped you overcome that? Oh yeah. I was, uh, I was always told, uh, either by my grandfather or my father that, you know, I was smarter than them. I was better than them. And grandfather, when I was little, I used to go with them. My grandmother would go to the store every day to buy whatever she needed for dinner that night. And so um, I had a speech impediment when I was little, okay? I couldn't say school. I would say stool like that. And um, they put me in special ed. <laughs> You're going to believe that, right? And so I had to go to uh, speech pathology, which I needed, definitely. But they told my mom to stop speaking to me in Spanish because that's what my problem was. And so, you know, imagine you're six years old and all of a sudden the language is cut off and my mom thinking, you know, she's doing the right thing by listening to these idiots. Um, I was not allowed to speak Spanish anymore, but I understood. So my job was to go with my grandparents and make sure that the white clerk gave my grandmother the right change back out of a 20. And uh, that was, and she would tell me in Spanish and then I would talk to the clerk in English. Wait a minute, she gave you a 20, you owe her a 10. You know, that was my job. Um, so my Spanish isn't very good. I mean, my mom and I, we can go to the store and we, it's kind of funny. I'm not self-conscious about it when I'm with my mother. But if I'm with, you know, I know what you're saying, but I don't have the vocabulary to give it back to you because of them breaking it off. Um, yeah, that was like, that was probably um, one of the things that, you know, it's just like, so then mom stopped talking to all of us mm. in Spanish. But my nephew, who's the attorney, I mean, he went and studied in Madrid. He speaks probably four or five languages, taught himself Arabic in uh, break time in his first year of law school. I said, have you lost your mind? <laughs> you need to be taking a break. He's <laughs> teaching himself Arabic, the Arabic uh, language. So my mom has a, um, she has the gift for language too. I mean, she can pick up other, like one of her friends was German. I mean, she didn't have any problems picking up German. But um, so when, when you had to deal with the outside world, you just dealt with them and you stand strong. 
his grandfather used to, you know, he brainwashed me, you know, yo soy un chicana, yo soy, you know, viva la raza. I mean, he taught me that be proud of who you are. So I was always, always believed that I was from the super race. So, I mean, that sounds terrible, but thank God, thank God, because when I got out in the world, those things were my foundation. Uh, I can't tell you how many of my Mexican girlfriends never even got graduated from high school. They got caught up and believed the bullshit that society at that time, and they still are, they're still, you know, um, telling us that we can't do this or we can't do that. You tell me I can't do something. I'm going to show you I can. But that's just. I mean, that's how I was raised. You know, you don't, I mean, imagine 1950, a Mexican woman marrying a white man in, and they got their marriage certificate in Lexington because back then Lexington was more well, uh, welcoming to Mexicans. Bet you didn't know that. (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the Barons, they were the the uh, family from Lexington that we knew, um, because there wasn't. I mean, there weren't that many of us. So you know, um, I had family in Grand Island. Um, we had family. Um, well, we knew the the sheriff in Ogallala was a Trujillo. Okay, so I mean, in different pockets, there was. You know, we had power in different ways. You know. Um, my mom would do the translating for the local sheriffs when you know, they would do an ice raid and he'd call, he'd say, Mary, can you come up and just, you know, see if you can help out. And, um, because they didn't, I mean, you know, and my mom did it out of the goodness of her heart, never got paid for translating. Mm. She just went up there and did it because it was the right thing to do, especially, you know, if they were leaving family members back here you know um yeah so yeah you just uh you know you can't let anyone or anything get in way of your destiny you know i believe that the universe equips us with what we need to be successful The question is whether or not we have the heart to follow that path. Because it's not going to be easy. No. But the harder it is, the most satisfying it is when you reach that goal. And then you look at, okay, what do I need to do next? I mean, I remember um, I had... I had uh, just burnt out on doing civil rights for people with disabilities. And most of my stuff was in federal court. I mean, I'm licensed uh, even in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Not very many attorneys can say that, Mm -hmm. you know. But I had a disability case that went clear up to the Supremes. And I was all excited. I'm going to argue, you know, Mexican woman, I'm going to go argue in front of you. Well, I won the damn case, but I never got the opportunity to go 
uh, argue. So I'm still looking for that case. I'm still looking for me a case. I'm not done yet. I won't retire until I go. And and, and so I'm still looking at that case or looking for that case. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's, I mean, if, if you're a, I, I call myself a path maker. My job is to make that path. And um, thank God that I wasn't a straight woman because I probably got married and had a bunch of kids and might not have lived uh, the life that I've lived. But I'm a gay woman. So all the kids are my kids. And that's how I got involved with the dreamers because those kids are my kids. These are my future. And so, and, and people don't understand that. The dreamers understand it, you know? Um, and so uh, that's when I got involved fighting Heidemann, Jensen, Kobach. And if you don't know those names, you should know those names. Um, we got in-state tuition for the dreamers because I had friends that their older sister had to pay out-of-state college tuition because she was a dreamer. Well, she couldn't afford that. So we got together with Senator uh, Schimmick, and we helped her the first go-around. And um, Holly Burns was working for the Mexican Commission at that time. Uh, Now it's called the Latino Commission and don't have the power that it used to have. It's unfortunate. Um, But that's how I got involved with fighting um, Jensen. And Jensen is out of Fremont. the, at that time, I was had my own practice. Um, I was just dabbling in criminal law because I seen a great need for our community to be represented properly, mm-hmm. especially if they were undocumented. And um, there's certain things that you that need to be done to make sure that if you can protect them from deportation. Um, And I knew that the other attorneys didn't know what they needed to do, you know. Um, I developed, uh, it's called a Padilla advisement. And I have that translated into English and Spanish. Um, And, I let people know that depending on what the crime is, it could make you deportable. And I go through that with them. And because my Spanish isn't very good, I have a a friend of mine who is an interpreter uh, for the state that, you know, she comes in here on Saturday and we go through it and I make sure that they understand what they're looking at. Right. And I have them sign it. And now, um, most, I would say most criminal attorneys uh, now realize that they need to be talking 
advising their undocumented. First of all, a lot of them were asking whether they were documented or not. It's like, you need to know the status of your client, especially if you're doing criminal law. I mean, right. come on now. You, you, we, you need to know that. Um, and so a large part of my practice is, to me, it's, yes, I represent, I represent people in state and federal court dealing with crimes. I also do immigration. It's particular towards family. I've, I've stopped doing cancellations because the current judges on the immigration court in Omaha are so far removed from reality. That's my nice way of saying that they're cold-blooded. They have no heart. And um, if I can't help you, I'm not going to do it. I, I don't need the money. I can't in good conscience. I've, I've turned down two now recently. And it's like I had lost a cancellation case until last October. And I lost two one day after another mm. because they are not about keeping people here. They're about deporting people. So the stats in, re in regards to deportation is just scandalous. It's heartbreaking. So I don't do that. I don't do cancellations. I've got six that I ha still have left to fight, but I'm not, I'm not taking on new cancellation cases because I know I can't help them and I, I can't do it. I don't like doing immigration anyway because it's too heartbreaking. Right. But, you know, uh, I still do the I-130s. And if you're a dreamer, if you have DACA, use advanced parole, please. Especially if you have a family member that's a green card holder permanent resident or a U.S. citizen, please use your advanced parole. Go see grandma and grandpa back in the old country, you know, especially if they haven't seen you in 20 or 30 years, go back, use your AP, and then you can adjust. That's just some free, free advice. <laughs> I love it. That's wonderful. You know, you've, you've, we've gone through it all. I think just a little bit of your history, your family history, your history in high school, um, going into college, and then now your career, anything that you want to share that you're doing currently, I know you're not, you're not just an attorney, Cheryl, you know, you do so much for the community. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you want to share about those pieces? Oh, yes. Uh, I am, um, I got involved in the Democratic Party just about 2018. I was independent for a lot of years. And before that, uh, my, I mean, my father was a Democrat. And so I was, you know, uh, pro-McGovern back in the day because I had five brothers. And Vietnam was, you know, at that time it was mandatory. If you were a poor girl or poor, if you were a poor boy, and uh, and I'm talking about if your parents were not, you know, millionaires, you're going to go to Vietnam uh, unless you've got bone spurs. Um, and then you couldn't. Uh, 
So we were McGovern because McGovern wanted to get us out of Vietnam. We should have never been in Vietnam, you know, should have never, ever. Uh, there were certain corporations making lots of money out of that. And that's, it's shameful, but that's the truth. So uh, we were, we wanted McGovern because McGovern was, was going to literally save all the poor minority boys that were going to be drafted and they were forced to go. My own brother, um, he joined the Navy uh, because he was going to be drafted. And uh, still, I mean, as you know, uh, in the Navy, he still was over in Vietnam, but he was on a ship. And um, my cousin was a Green Beret, highly decorated, Philip Mora. Um, they, and his brother, Johnny, was highly decorated Vietnam vet. And Phil drunk himself to death by the age of 60 because of the stuff, the trauma that he didn't get help with from serving in, in Vietnam. Because the Green Beret, unfortunately, did a lot of seek and destroy missions. And I know that that haunted him. Uh, my cousin Johnny, his brother, he was killed in a accident, a drunk driver here in Lincoln killed Johnny, his brother Tommy, uh, their cousin, the, um, I don't remember his cousin's name, but their last name was Delgado, and the baby that was with them. And uh, that, that white businessman never got, never served a day in jail. So another reason why I became a lawyer, right. because yeah, there was no justice. And clearly, there was no justice in in that um, situation. So, um, what I do for fun? Um, well, I watch TikTok so I can be on top of what the young ones are thinking. Um, I got involved in the Democratic Party because my nephew always wanted to, and he works with me. He's my assistant. Um, he's always been involved in politics. And um, I had a run-in back in the day with some Democrats, and I just thought, well, a bunch of racist assholes. And that's what I thought. And excuse the language, but that's I'm being honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, so... There was a new uh, chair of the Democratic Party, and um, she was very welcoming. And I was like, could this be real? Could this be true? You know? And uh, so I, you know, got involved kind of through my nephew. And then um, the fact that, you know, uh, in about three, four years, I am now the chair of the Nebraska De Democratic Party's platform committee. And the platform committee are, uh, it is, uh, we develop a document that is the foundation of our essence as Democrats. And I'm very proud to say that with the help of an African-American woman, 
a Native American woman, um, a white male who has disabilities. Um, we have probably one of them and the committee itself. So we had a lot of different voices there, um, but I would say that we have probably one of the most enlightened uh, and inclusive platform in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, especially if you consider that we're a red state. Yeah. Yeah. And the best way for us to fight right now is to register to vote. It's scaring the hell out of them. Why do you think they want this voter ID? It's trying to stop us. And so that tells me now is the time. The fact that they're talking more and more, and, and look how they went after the black votes and how they're trying to suppress them. So it's like, and suppress their own folks too, if they don't think like them. So um, yeah, voting is probably, I mean, if we want to act, do a revolution, our revolution is to register people to vote. That's the revolution that's coming. And they know it and it scares the hell out of them. And I love that you involve dreamers in it. And just, they don't even have to be dreamers, undocumented folk that want to help. Are you open to uh, mentoring individuals and or somebody seeking out oh, know, support? We have a lot of young Latinas. Our main audience are Latinas from the ages of 18 to 40. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You betcha. Uh, they can contact me either uh, by email or call me or um, Facebook. I have um, or Twitter or TikTok or it's I have them all. But um, probably the best is Messenger. You know, that's probably on Facebook. That's like I just was contacted uh, last night. A young man wants to run um, uh, for a position in Grand Island. And so he wants me to mentor him. And of course, you know, I'll, I don't care if I have to get down, you know, jump in the car and go down there and whatever we need to do and take a little army with me. What I, 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 what I wish I could have um, included was um, when I do recruitment, like, um, you know, we'll set up a tent at the uh, Latino festival here in Lincoln. My helpers are dreamers. My helpers have always been the dreamers. There's a, there's a, a, uh, uh, Mayan saying, and I'm I'm probably not gonna say it right, but um it's something that I think that it would be absolutely imperative that we all live by it. The name of it is I am you or you are me. You are my other me. If I do harm to you, I do harm to myself. If I love and respect you, I love and respect myself. 
And that's what we're going to have to do. We'll have to bring together. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're Mexican or Guatemalan or Honduras or Chilean or it doesn't matter. Um, We're all, if nothing else, we're all cousins. And we come in all sizes, all shades. And we have to come together. Because once we come together, we will take our rightful place. And that's to make this world a more loving place and a more accepting place. And I'll leave you with that. I love it. I love it. And I will quote that Mayan saying, don't you worry. <laughs> That'll be the title of our, of our, our podcast episode. Thank you, Cheryl. I love that to make this world a more loving place. I love that you included Central American, South American. I mean, we all as Latinx, Latinos, Hispanos really need to come together. And like you said, make this world a more loving place. So thank you otra vez for joining us at Courageous Mujer Podcast. I know that a lot of women are going to be inspired by the work that you do and motivated because of all the barriers that you have overcome. Um, You are for sure a trailblazer and a courageous mujer in my point of view. And I'm so happy that we are able to get to know you through Courageous Mujer Podcast. Thank you, mujeres, for listening to Courageous Mujer Podcast. I'm your host, Gladys Godinez. You can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcast. And while you're there, make sure to leave some love and write a review. You can also find us on Insta, Face, and YouTube. Courageous Mohead Podcast is brought to you by United by Culture Media, based out of Lexington, Nebraska. United by Culture Media's mission is to create a safe and authentic space in which the diverse rural story exists. Don't forget to click on our link tree to follow our work and get involved. This podcast has been directed and written by Gladys Godinez, produced by Chris Cox, and edited by Elizabeth Macias.